Good to see all of you here. The Lord is glad you're here. I'm glad you're here as well. If you would, grab your Bible. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And as you are turning there, let me say that if you are one of our guests, we are especially glad you're here. We do hope you will stick around out of services. We'll get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let us pray. Merciful God, there is so much pain and suffering in the world. Even though we have been enlightened by the revelation of your word, we still uh, grapple with it, we still wrestle with it. How much more so those who do not believe in you. We pray that as we discuss this very important topic, that you would continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts and embolden us so that we can impact our culture with the gospel, the good news that Christ saves sinners. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. We continue our series, Six Questions to Ask a Skeptic. Uh, this, of course, a, a series that is designed to enable us to engage the culture in which we live. I think we want to do that as Christians. We have uh, been told by Christ to go and to make disciples, and part of what that entails is uh, asking good questions. You know, sometimes I think when we get into conversations with our skeptical friends or skeptical neighbors, skeptical family members, we do kind of end up on the defensive. They ask very good questions of us. And so the, uh, the, the impetus behind this series is to take a page out of the uh, playbook of Christ, who when he was asked questions by his opponents in his day, he would often ask a question back to them. John's baptism, where is it from? From heaven or from below? And uh, these questions aren't designed to be gotcha questions. They are designed to open up conversation with our skeptical friends and neighbors and family members, to open up a non-manipulative dialogue designed to be a dialogue where we talk back and forth and we seek to ponder these questions in a sober way, but also for us in a way that points people to the only real answer to these questions, which is in Christ and in God. We are leaning into the definition of skeptic from George Barna's research uh, from a number of years ago, his book, The Seven Faith Tribes. He said that in his day, this was 2009, uh, or at least in, in that time contemporary with him when he wrote the book, that the skeptics, as he defined them, were the atheists, the agnostics, those who identified as none when asked what their religion was. Uh, back then, it was around 11, 11% in America. 11% of Americans were, according to Barna's definition, skeptics. But that number has continued to grow in recent years. A lot of those who do studies like that continue to track the number. In recent years, it's been anywhere between 20 and 21% here in America identify as none, as no religion, having no religious affiliation. So 
what do we do when confronted by our skeptical friends and neighbors and family members who are asking these good questions? Well, one thing I, we, we attempt to do is to demonstrate how their worldview, and everybody's got a worldview, we are Christians, we have a Christian worldview, that is a worldview that is dependent upon the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the way in which we see the world and make sense of the world. Our skeptical friends, our unbelieving friends, they also have a worldview, and according to their, to their worldview, which seeks to eliminate God or at least marginalize God, these big questions, they don't go away. In fact, they remain unanswered. And that is what we're attempting to demonstrate is that that worldview cannot offer satisfying answers to these particular questions. In fact, that worldview is rooted upon and based upon a foundation which is collapsing in on itself, that often the skeptic will find that they are standing with both feet firmly planted in midair, or they are having to borrow and ransack our worldview in order to try and hold their worldview together. We're really demonstrating that their worldview is inconsistent with itself. Whereas we, according to the Christian worldview, uh, we have a lot of consistency uh, in, when it comes to these difficult questions. We're exploring the question today, what is the meaning of suffering? What is the meaning of suffering? Everybody suffers. There's pain, there's evil in this world. And so what do we do with that? How do we explain that? Can we explain it uh, from the unbelieving worldview? Do they have the resources, the capital necessary to cash the checks that they are writing? This is a, a problem for everybody. Uh, it is the classically identified as a question of theodicy. That's the big word for it, theos, meaning God. Uh, the last part there of theodicy coming from the Greek term for righteous or, or just uh, it is the justification of God in the light of pain and suffering. How it has been formulated in the past, how can evil exist when God is all good and all powerful? Uh, and, and so uh, that's the, the way that our skeptical friends may pose it to us. But the challenge for us is to kind of turn the tables on them and say, well, look, I, I have a way of explaining that and working through this tough problem. Whereas, I'm not sure that you do. It is a problem for the skeptics. The problem of evil doesn't go away just because you say, I don't believe in God. In fact, all that does is now present an insurmountable chasm, an unpassable chasm uh, for our unbelieving, our skeptical friends. You see, we dealt with this a little bit a couple of few weeks ago when we dealt with the question of can we be good without God? And what we demonstrated then was that our skeptical friends really don't have a basis or a foundation whereby they're able to define what good and evil are. When you eliminate God, you eliminate the standard by which you can actually differentiate between good and evil. Disconnected from God, the ideas of good and evil just become mere abstractions. And often what ends up happening is they become relativized where I have my definition for what I think is good or what I think is evil, and you have your definition for what you think is good and what you think is evil, and there may be some overlap, but what happens a lot of the times is what you think is good or evil differs from what I think is good or evil. Who's right? By what standard? Is there even a standard? And 
spoiler alert, there is no standard from an unbelieving, skeptical worldview whereby we can determine who's right and who's wrong in the discussion of defining good and evil. You see, dismissing the existence of God dismisses the standard whereby we can identify good and evil. Let me approach it this way. Uh, we believe, and I believe this is true for everybody, we believe there are certain things that are good and there are certain things that are evil. There are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And they're always right or they're always wrong. That means that there is a transcendent moral law whereby we are able to differentiate between good and evil. And if there is this transcendent moral law, it must exist because of a transcendent moral law giver. And we believe that the transcendent moral law giver is God, even the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have existed from eternity. It is this God who gives us that transcendent moral law whereby we can differentiate between good and evil. That's the argument from our perspective. But again, the unbelieving worldview can't do that. In fact, they will dismiss a transcendent moral law. There are things, they can't even say that there are things that are absolutely wrong. They, may, they might say things like, well, it's intersubjectively wrong. But that's the best they can do is, again, a relativized understanding of this. Let me give you an example of this. Will Provine of Cornell University, he's kind of famous for one of the speeches that he gave wherein he said that one of the clear consequences of naturalistic evolution is no ultimate foundation for ethics exists. You hear it. A clear consequence, that's his language, a clear consequence of naturalistic evolution, Darwinian evolution, is that, and again, quote, there is no ultimate foundation for ethics. No ultimate foundation for ethics exists. So, with that understanding, by the way, that's the natural consequence of the unbelieving worldview. That's where it lands. Will Provine is just being consistent with his particular worldview. So, who is to say that anything, any event, any action, is evil when it comes to suffering and pain and evil in the world? Who's to say? Again, by what standard? In fact, based upon the, survive, the, the principle of survival of the fittest, according to Darwinian evolution, perhaps it could be that the slaughter of men, women, and children in certain circumstances is actually the right thing to do. And we've talked about historically how this has manifested. Who's to say that Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot's programs for mass genocide, who's to say that was evil? The best they can do is to say, this is evil to me. That's it. Skeptics also are notorious for pointing to other tragedies and evils in this world in order to say, see, look, here's, here's clear proof there can't be a God because how can a good God allow these types of things to happen? For example, uh, Dan Barker, in one of his debates with our own uh, Kyle Butt from Apologetics Press, talked about children's hospitals and the children's wing of a hospital, and, and he said, all you have to do, and this is a quote, all you have to do is walk into a children's hospital and you know there is no God. There you go. That's the, that's the proof positive. But is that the case? First of all, you recognize it's, it's an emotional argument, an argument from emotion. But can't this same emotional argument be turned around 
and a table turned on the unbeliever. Walk through a children's hospital and notice the outpouring of love and care that you see from medical personnel and from families. And then you know that Darwinian evolution and the whole survival of the fittest principle is not true. How do you explain that outpouring of love and care from a purely naturalistic, humanistic, Darwinian evolution worldview? can't do it. And of course, when we eliminate God, that is when we eliminate all hope of wrongs being made right, ultimately. Those who take life in, in awful and devastating fashion, and, and we have, again, myriad historical examples of this. We also have contemporary examples today that happen in the Middle East, in Africa, in China, where some of our own brothers and sisters are being slaughtered in the name of the state or in the name of Allah or in the name of you fill in the blank. For us as Christians, we believe that these Christians will ultimately be vindicated in the end. We are told that if we endure, that we will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 tells us. According to a unbelieving worldview, suffering is just as tragic, if not more so. Because without God, uh, first of all, uh, the atheist loses any opportunity to blame God, right? That's one of their favorite pastimes, and so they're believing in something that doesn't exist, according to their worldview, right? But then also... There's no one to reach out to for strength or for hope. See, you're all, you have to turn inward, and it's all dependent upon you to make sense of all this cosmic evil. And there's no promise that all this pain and suffering will ultimately be redeemed or will be vindicated. God will be justified in all of that. And those Christians who suffer for it will be justified. No, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, does not go away when we eliminate God from the... Uh, perspective. In fact, it's uh, arguably intensified. It's augmented. All we are are the random, purposeless products of accidents, cosmic accidents. We are so much stardust bumping into other stardust. We are sacks of mostly water who came from nothing and we're heading toward nothing. And it's very, uh, very bleak, very dark, very nihilistic in its outlook. But from a theistic worldview, I do believe that there are resources. I don't, I don't want to give the impression that the problem of evil all of a sudden is just magically solved or anything like that just because you're a Christian. It's th there's still some unanswered questions. It's still a challenge because we are finite, we are creatures, we're not all-knowing, but we can operate on the clear revelation of God that, that provides us explanation uh, to a certain degree. And I do think that there is uh, satisfying answers this side of eternity to the problem of suffering in the Christian worldview. First, let's back up and talk about what are some of the reasons as to why we suffer? Well, when Adam and Eve were created, they were endowed with a will that was free from evil and sin and uh, things like that. 
They had a will. There's a, not a lot that's, uh, that's revealed for us. We get two and a half chapters at the very beginning as to what it was like for Adam and Eve. But I do believe it's, it's uh, safe to say that they had a will that was different than our will because it was not touched by sin and a fallen world. But then they did sin. And sin entered into the picture. And with sin came death. And with, with sin and with death came all kinds of issues that deal with our cognitive facilities, our cognitive faculties. Scripture talks about how because of sin and because of the fall, our thinking is now uh, clouded. It is now futile. Uh, our understanding is darkened. Okay, these are all terms that deal with our thinking. And that impacts our will. And so what ends up happening with our fallen, though creaturely will, is we often choose the wrong thing. We choose evil. We choose sin. And I think we see this writ large a lot of the times on the evening news where uh, sinners and fallen humans do unspeakable evil acts to one another. And so these decisions, they are wrong at a personal level. You think, and we have a whole Bible full of this as well. I think of uh, what David did in the episode with David and Bathsheba. He suffered personally due to his uh, grossly wrong and grossly immoral decision of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then covering up with the murder of her husband. We also suffer because of the wrong decisions of others. Think about the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. His brothers clearly made a wrong, immoral decision in selling him off to the traveling band of uh, Midianites. It was a very bad, no good decision of his brothers that Joseph suffered because of that. Keep that in mind. We'll circle back to that in a moment. There are also wrong decisions of past generations. Peter's the one who talks about the hereditary chains of sin when he talks about the futile ways that Gentiles inherit from their forefathers. We could also talk about we still suffer the consequences of what Adam and Eve did at the beginning. Sin and death entered into the world, and this world was subjected to futility, and uh, we ourselves, again, suffer the consequences of a world broken by sin. That happened way back at the very beginning. Not to let God off the hook because, well, he puts himself on the hook for this. We don't just want to focus on the wrong decisions of humans. But we also need to take into account the sovereign purposes of the Almighty God. In Isaiah 45 and verse 7, we have a very clear statement from God himself. Listen carefully to what he says here. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. And I specifically mention this verse because I think there is a temptation on our parts as Christians to try and get God off the hook when it comes to pain and suffering. We can't do that because God doesn't do that. 
he situates himself squarely in this world. And by the way, if we try to eliminate God from all pain and from all suffering, we also eliminate the resources whereby we can endure the pain and the suffering. If all we want is God in the good times, what are we left with in the bad times? We're going to talk about Job in a few minutes, what the Job story says to us. But within the Job story, you see God is sovereign over what the devil can do to Job. At first, you can't lay a finger on the man himself. And then, okay, you can afflict the man himself, but you can't kill him. God only gives the junkyard dog so much chain, as it were. He's sovereign over that. Now, whether you want to say he allows it, he permits it, you can be the determiner in that. But don't miss it. He's involved in that. So much so that when Job, throughout the, uh, the book of Job, is saying, where are you? Come on down here. Job essentially saying, where's God in this mess? When God shows up, he essentially says, you were sitting in the ash heap. I was there with you. Which speaks volumes to us that when we are going through our pain and suffering, when we are sitting on our own proverbial ash heap, God is there with us as well. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, Again, keeping in mind 45 verse 7 of Isaiah, God says in Isaiah 10 verses 6 and following, He says, I'm going to raise up a godless nation. I will send a godless nation against my people. I will command this godly nation against my people. And it's because His people are caught up in sin and immorality. People who should know better because they have the law of God are busy wearing themselves out, breaking the law of God. And so God says, I will send, I will command a godless nation against them. He says of Assyria, and that's the nation that he's raising up, will be the axe in my hand. God is the one who's going to wield that axe. Don't miss this. That even in the midst of that calamitous, destruction that the Assyrians are going to bring, God is saying, yeah, but that judgment is ultimately coming from me. He's judging his people for their sins in that. And then I mentioned the Joseph story. You circle back to that. And what is Joseph's perspective on this? It might be good to put our eyeballs on that text in Genesis chapter 50, 20. After years of seeing his family, years away from the family. He'd been in an Egyptian prison all the way to the palace. There's a lot uh, that can be said for the Joseph story. It's for another time to work through all of that. And you get through all this. The boys, the sons, their father has died. And the brothers of Joseph are concerned that now that dad's out of the picture, Joseph's going to be mean to us now. He's going to really punish us for what we did. And so they send a messenger to Joseph and they say, "Uh, you know, Joseph, funny thing. I don't know if you heard, but when dad was still alive, he said that after he died, you got to be nice to us. 
But Joseph said to them, this is verse 19 of Genesis 50, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And it's verse 20. Listen, again, this is his perspective on, on what his brothers did way back when, when they sold him into captivity. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And there's a parallel construction here that, that is talking about the very same event. It. You meant that for evil. They're wrong decisions. And there's sin all over the place in what the brothers did to Joseph. But overriding all of that is that God meant it for good. The very same event. Where there's sin all over the picture. God is at work for His good purposes. You ready? We read it at the beginning in Romans chapter 8. Come with me to Romans chapter 8. And, and hopefully you're beginning to see now the resources that are ours in God and especially now in Christ. Romans 8 and verse 28. Some call this the family secret. The family secret. That this is, this is what we as Christians, as believers, know. And that the rest of the world fails to acknowledge that they don't know, they don't believe in this. But we know that for those who love God, say amen if you love God. Amen, yes. That for those who love God, some things work for good. Is that what your Bible says? Most things work out for good. You know, there's some things that are kind of out of his control. That for those who love God, all things work for good. They work together for good. What about those situations where it's just bad, 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 written all over it in great big capital letters? You mean even in those things, God is at work together for good and even for our good? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God causes all those things to work out for good. The question is, whose definition of good Right? Because often we want to define good and what good looks like and what good is. When in reality, we need to let God define what good is. It's His greater good. And so, just briefly, a few things that come to mind when it comes to the kind of good we're talking about. It could be that, that we are drawn closer to God by those things closer to Christ. It could be that God is building our character through suffering. This is what Paul says back in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured into our hearts through suffering, uh, excuse me, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But notice where it started. It started with suffering. And so it could be that through that suffering, God is building character. It could be that perhaps there's some lesson that we ourselves learn that we pass along to others. But here's the thing, and I mentioned it earlier in the sermon, we are finite creatures 
And sometimes we will not see the good purposes of God. Sometimes it'll escape us. We will, and that's that's part of uh, the the uh, mystery of this. Is since we are not all knowing, we are not all seeing when it comes to identifying. How is it that even in this, God is working out His good purposes? But by faith, we know that somehow, some way, one God has morally sufficient reasons as to why He permits or allows or even causes this particular bad, evil, no good situation. But also by faith, I have confidence that God is accomplishing His good purposes even in that. Not only do we have the family secret here in Romans 8.28, we also have a word from Christ that I want to share with you from John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. You see, again, a lot of the suffering and the evil that we endure in this world is caused by death. But for the believer, we have this promise from Christ. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Uh, you may have seen uh, that... Uh, Last week, Tim Keller uh, passed away. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a number of books. Uh, in fact, one of his books, The Reason for God, is a resource that I've been pulling some of these questions and some of the answers from. He's written uh, Prodigal God, Generous Justice, uh, a book, uh, Walking Through Pain and Suffering with God. That's a book that Years ago, we did a Wednesday night Bible study on that we called Where is God in This Mess? A buddy and I co-taught that, and that was one of the resources that we leaned, leaned into. Uh, one of my favorite sermons from Tim Keller is uh, a, a sermon he preached on uh, Leah from Genesis 29. It's entitled The Girl Nobody Wanted, and I'll uh, let you track that down. But uh, one of the things that uh, Keller said, and I'm going to butcher it, I think, just off the top of my head, but he said, that Christians, we, we don't have anything to fear when it comes to death. In fact, death is what truly frees us for glory. Uh, and so when it comes to death, we have this promise from, from Christ, though you die, and we know from elsewhere in Scripture, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Though we die, yet we shall live. We have the glorious hope of the resurrection, that this life is not all there is. Thank God. Because if, if all we had was this life, man, we are to be pitied more than anybody else, right? That's what Paul says. And that statement from Paul is in the context of his discussion about resurrection as well. The unbelieving worldview has nothing even close to this. There is no hope of resurrection. But for us, we have the promise of the resurrection. Uh, and then one more, and, and I, I cited it earlier, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, that if we endure, we will reign with Him. And, and the endurance there is the endurance of all that this life can throw at us, whether it's uh, all the, the spiritual 
fiery arrows of the evil one, whether it's the, the, the mental things that we suffer from just from our own flesh, whether it's the, the physical things from living in this fallen world wherein there is suffering and death, sickness and all this, if we endure, we will reign with him. That is, our king will take all those wrongs and put them to right. That this world we live in, it's like a, a, a broken bone, and yet Christ is the one who comes and resets it. And we have uh, this promise that God, all the affliction that we endure, God will repay that to the ones who afflicted upon us. And that could be uh, physical opponents, but especially spiritual opponents who are against us day in and day out, day after day. They don't take a break. They don't take vacation. No coffee breaks, nothing, right? God will uh, visit vengeance upon them, that there will be final justice. You know, that, that's one of the things is, is a lot of the people that do bad stuff in this world, they don't pay for it. Sometimes they get, get away with it even. But no one gets a free lunch on God. No one's going to game God. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And he will execute perfect justice. That's the other thing. Is often our idea of justice is not God's idea of justice. Sometimes we take justice into our own hands and we get it wrong. God's justice is perfect because he will judge the world in righteousness. How do we know? How can we be sure? Quickly, Acts chapter 17. Paul here at the end of his sermon at the Areopagus, in the midst of all of the philosophers in his day. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Everybody everywhere. What we owe God is repentance. Verse 31. Because, here's why, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. Of this, he has given assurance. How? In what way? He's given assurance to all by raising him, the man he appointed, Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead. It is the resurrection of Christ that is the guarantee and the promise that one day God will put all wrongs to right, final justice will be executed perfectly and in righteousness, and that we also will be vindicated for our faith being rightly placed in Christ and in God. I mentioned Job earlier. Remember Job? <laughs> Remember how that story starts? The devil's been going all over to and fro in the world, and he comes, presents himself with the other sons of God before God and the divine council. And God brings up Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And the devil protests, you put a hedge of protection around him and, and all that. But just, have you considered my servant Job? The question that I want to leave with you, my brothers and my sisters, is would God say that about you? Have you considered my servant Jack? Have you considered my servant Sharon? Have you considered my servant? Put your name in there. Plug your name in there. You see, God knows us. 
He knows us. The Lord knows his own. And although we may protest, it may be that thorn in the flesh that we say, take it away, take it away, take it away. God promises that whatever he sends, my grace is sufficient for that. It is true that everyone suffers one degree or another. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But for the saint, the suffering is different. Because our Father knows us. He keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. And he will be the one who brings ultimate vindication of that suffering. Without God, I think pain and suffering, as tragic as it is, is even more tragic. Because a worldview without God lacks explanatory power for evil itself, lacks the ability to even define evil, and also can't explain the love that's shown in the midst of suffering. It also leaves a person without hope and without resources in the midst of suffering. I hear about humanist chaplains. What kind of hope, what kind of resources can they offer those who are suffering in the midst of their pain? But there is a God, and we believe in Him. And there is a God that we can reach out to when we suffer. And He offers strength, and He offers support, and He offers significance. That whatever suffering or pain we're enduring, it is not without meaning, and it is not without purpose. Indeed, it is His purpose that is at work, and He is working out all things according to or after the counsel of His will. And so when the pain comes, and when evil events take place, it is tragic. And no, I by no means want to just paint a, a happy sunshine picture over that. It is tragic. But we have the blessed assurance that God, He still cares, and He is a God who helps, and He is a God who's involved even in the midst of it. And we know that God is at work together in all things for His good, for His good purposes, and His good will. Let's pray about this. <clears throat> Father God, we don't always uh, understand. We still uh, grapple with this subject. There's still much more that can be said. But by faith, we look to you, confident of your good, sovereign, and glorious purpose in this world. That you do have a good will and a good intention in all that takes place. And we pray that with the eyes of faith, we would continue to see that at work in this world. We do continue to pray for our skeptical, unbelieving friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers. We pray that we would identify the divine appointments that you put in our way, and that we would take full advantage of them, and that we would give a defense for the hope that is within us, that they too might come to trust and hope in you. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.